Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Hello, my friends. I hope you are all having a fantastic week, and I'm so excited to welcome you to the show. I am truly grateful for the opportunity to chat with such incredible guests from week to week on topics like food and nutrition, resilience, mental health, career, and much, much more. Today's conversation is another really powerful one, and I know you're going to love it. This week, we are chatting with Belinda Clemenson, the founder and CEO of Women's Leadership Intensive and author of the new book, Women, Leadership, and Saving the World. Fitting into the workplace can often leave women feeling exhausted and frustrated, especially when we understand that the business world was designed by and for men. Through her work as a women's leadership advocate, Belinda aims to change that. In our conversation, we talk about the need for equity and equality in the workplace and beyond, and ways we can start moving the needle in the right direction. She also shares how we can connect with what matters most to us, tips for creating that equity and equality at home, how men can be part of the change, and how to better navigate our fight, flight, or fawn response. It is a much-needed conversation with a lot of insightful takeaways. Today's episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field or you have a unique story to share, KitCaster can help you grow your brand and connect with podcasts that fit your niche. They have an incredible team of communication experts that will help you dive into the world of podcasting. If you're interested in working with KitCaster, you can go to kitcaster.com slash wanderlust to apply for a special offer for friends of this podcast. I've also linked this offer in the show notes. Okay, my friends, now on to today's conversation. Hi, Belinda. Thank you so much for joining us at Wellness and Wanderlust. Hi, Valerie. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I am so excited to chat with you. This is a topic very near and dear to my heart, and I can't wait to dive in. Before we really get started, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell them a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I'm Belinda Clemenson. I am the founder of a company called the Women's Leadership Intensive, and our mission is to inspire, empower, support, and equip women to lead the change the world needs. And we do this through providing leadership development that is by women for women. So really getting behind women who want to step into their leadership roles and do things differently. And just this past month, just a couple of weeks ago, launched my very first book called Women, Leadership, and Saving the World, Why Everything Gets Better When Women Lead. And so just really excited to be able to share what we've been working on in our women's leadership programs over the years in book form so that more people can get their hands on it and have conversations just like this one. Well, first of all, congratulations on the new book. It is so good and I think so needed, especially in the world we're living in. I I know you talk a lot in the book about how while we're moving in the right direction, we're just not moving fast enough. And I think so many of the women listening to this episode can relate to that. What inspired you to get into this line of work? Well, I was doing leadership development for most of my career. And so working with corporations and organizations around the world and helping their leaders get better at what they do. And for the most part, you know, really kind of loving my work very much about human approach to leadership and being authentic, right? Being human to human. And yet at the same time, over the years, I just started to more and more get this feeling like I was supporting a system that I didn't quite believe in. I was helping build leaders to lead things that I wasn't sure were the right things to lead or that they weren't being done the right way. And I just couldn't stop seeing that some people's voices were heard more in those rooms and that some people's careers progressed more than others and that there were just these disparities happening and inequities happening Yeah. And I just got to the point where I couldn't turn away from it. You know, for a long time, I would tell myself like, you're there for the people who are in front of you, right? Just do a good job for those people. And that worked until it didn't. (laughs) And I just, I basically had a crisis of consciousness where I was like, okay, am I making the contribution that I want to be making to this world? Right? I'm good at what I do. Things are going fine, but you know, there's this doubt pulling at me. And so I started to just dig into the research. I, I had had a lot of experience in the past with women in leadership and, and organizations that were based on sort of 
uh, feminist practices and principles. And so I went back to those roots and started looking at like, how are we actually doing like outside of my own experience of what I'm seeing in boardrooms and executive teams, like how are we actually doing on women in leadership right now? And we're not doing that great. You know, like we've made progress, that is for sure, but the gaps are still huge. And finally, we've got research now that shows there are so many benefits to having more diverse leadership teams and gender balanced leadership teams that I just, I sort of asked myself, like, if I was going to support leaders, who would I want to support? And the answer loud and clear was women, loud and clear. Yeah. All of this, I'm just nodding my head because I, you know, you see it in every organization, not every organization, but in many, many organizations where the people at the top, I know that there was a statistic that you had cited that I think that there are more men in the C-suite named John, I think, than, than actual, than women-owned businesses. And we have a joke in our organization. I work in, um, I work in banking and I actually work in credit unions, which are more female-centered than, than banks, but still at the very top levels, you see mostly men. And there are, I think, three Kevins in the C-suite. Now, kind of coincidental. <laughs> or not. Not a huge company. So it's kind of like we kind of joke about it, but it definitely makes you think. We always joke that, hey, if we want to move up, change your name to Kevin. And I say this with love toward toward people in, in the organization, but it is something that, that you see in so many places and in, in, in many, many organizations out there. Talk to me about, this is a hard question for me to ask because I feel like this is something that, that I want to see. And again, like m- most of the audience listening wants to see, but talk to me about why it's important to have women, you know, at the table and leading organizations and in those seats. Yeah. Well, I mean, first I want to address the, you know, the John Kevin dynamic because, you know, I think we need to, this is something that I do all the time is I go, if I'm going to work with a company, I go and look at what does their board look like and what does their leadership team look like? And usually they have pictures, right? Which is helpful because you're getting those names, but you're also getting the pictures. And so the John Kevin phenomenon is definitely about it's men, but it's, those are also very white names, right? So there's an intersectionality here that's happening. We often think about intersectionality on the places where we're marginalized, but there are also intersections that lead to privilege upon privilege, right? Or advantages upon advantages. And sometimes that's what we're seeing when we see, you know, the John phenomenon in, in CEOs, for example. But to get to your question about why is it important that we have women in leadership roles at scale. And by at scale, I mean, I'm proposing, hey, women are 50% of the population. I kind of think we should just be 50% of, of all the leadership and decision making. <laughs> Why not? Right? It's easy math. But there, I sort of see this from two angles. And one of them is there's a moral imperative for equality now. And that's a gender equality for sure, but equality across the board. And I think the times that we're living in today, it is really hard to argue against equality as a concept. Although, believe me, people are still doing it. I had an argument with somebody just last week, right, about making the case for why equality is actually necessary. So there's, I think there's a moral case there. There's a moral ethical case. But then there's also a really strong business case. And that's where there's been so much great research in the last decade. So if if you care about things like productivity, profit, safety, which are all super important metrics in business, well, those things improve when you have women in leadership. Or if you care about things like access to education and healthcare and some of those um, social issues, women in leadership is going to improve those metrics too. Even things like more sustainable decision-making, decreased greenhouse gases, peace agreements last longer, more ethical decision-making and less fraud. Like if you name the index and women in leadership makes it better. And those things are great for women. They're great for children, but they're just great for everybody, right? We all like sustainability, for example, right? We're, we are all sharing this planet together. So if we're getting decisions that are better for the planet, it's better for all of us. Now, that's a long-term view, though. I think in some cases, the short-term view feels uh, feels easier to grasp. Yeah, and I know that so many times it feels like when, when we bring up equality and equity in our organizations that men feel threatened by it and they think that 
what we're proposing is that we just eliminate everybody on the executive floor and put in all women and take away every man's job, which is not the point at all and not what I think anyone is trying to do, but rather have people represented at the scale that they exist in and that they're there. Because I mean, even just the point of like, when you have a more diverse group of people at the table, you're going to have more diverse perspectives, better problem solving, just different ideas, different life experiences that come to the table. But then you also, I, I know I went through a women in leadership program a few years ago, and so many of those leadership traits that are so inherent in us are traits that really, that men would benefit from having as well. I think that collaboration and the authenticity, and I think we advocate better than than anybody when it comes to at least the people around us. And I think there are so many great things that that we bring to the table that are not recognized and often unless, you know, unless they're put under like a male view. Yes. And and it's really, if you think about, if you're coming at this from like, oh, well, we need to beat them at their own game, then I think you're going to get into things like competition and pushback. Where I come at it from is like, let's just change the game altogether, right? Let's make a better game. So if we're thinking about men being worried about losing their space. That's assuming that we keep all the systems exactly the same and we just move the players around. We say, okay, let's take some of these men out and put some of these women in. Well, I think we need to go deeper than that at this point and just re-examine the system as a whole, right? And start rethinking and recreating what that could look like. What would a better organization look like? What would a better response to climate crisis look like? And I think if we get into that that place of questioning the things that we've been told are just the way it is and start to say, well, why does it have to be that way? Could we think of it differently? It's not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes. It's going to be a a process of discovery, but it's not perfect now. Right. And that's, that's sort of the thing that keeps me moving forward is, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of things we haven't tried. Let's try some new things, some truly new things and do it together if we can. Yeah. I mean, we're not living in a utopia. (laughs) And unfortunately, climate change is, it's a really scary thing. And it's, I mean, it's going to impact the, I mean, it's impacting now, but it's going to impact the immediate generations to follow. And if we don't do something, if we don't change how we've always been doing things, I mean, there there isn't much time, I would say, to to really fix that. And so many of the other systems as well. I mean, there there's so much going on in the world that, yeah, if we keep approaching it from the same perspective and no offense to the white men listening, but with the same people in the same roles and with the same systems in place, I mean, it's not how how can we expect it to get any better? I mean, it's like expecting a different result from doing the exact same thing. That's it. That's it. And again, it isn't it isn't necessarily about intentionally displacing people. It's about saying we don't have diversity at those tables right now and diversity would benefit all of us. So how do we rethink it? Right? How do we understand that the systems are structured in a certain way to kind of be self-perpetuating? Right? How do we interrupt that process so that we can get something new happening and then we can get to some new outcomes like what you said? Mm-hmm. Well, and something you talk about in the book, and I think that this is something I, I needed to hear this, I think, that we are living in a world that wasn't built for us. If you are not a white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied man, that there are a lot of systems going against us. And even with like COVID-19, how so many women, I can't remember the exact statistic, but the number of women that were left out of major company decisions because they had to prioritize childcare at that point or whatever it was, just like the things that they needed to do because life doesn't stop you know, yeah. and and again, there's a global pandemic going on. The the system is just not for us. So so, what do we do when we are in this situation where it's many 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 years where society has looked a certain way? How can we create those changes for ourselves? It's a great question. The roles of women during the the pandemic is is a really great example in terms of the economy, the way we look at how we value things, has not included caregiving work. And then we have a pandemic and we go, oh my gosh, caregiving work actually keeps the wheels on this whole bus, right? Whether that's caring for children, caring for people who are ill, caring for parents, uh, vulnerable people, you know? So I think that that highlighted things a lot. And so now I think we need to keep a little bit of pressure on the systems, the things that we learned through those experiences, right? So 
I know that there is such a desire to quote unquote, get back to normal. And I totally understand it and relate. I mean, there's certain things that just feel so good to get back to after the last few years, which have been so challenging. And we learned some really important lessons. And so I think we just need to keep sight of those things and keep up the pressure on some of those kinds of changes so that we don't just revert back to not caring about those things or not counting those things. That's sort of a bigger picture. You know, that's like a collective work that we need to do. I think individually, I I always sort of say like, there's probably two areas in each of our lives where we can do some work. One is in our homes. So there's this great saying, which is equality begins at home. And I think it's so true because if we want to be able to go and make changes out in the world, in our workplace or in our communities, we need to have the energy and the time to do it. And in most households, women are doing way more invisible, unpaid domestic and caregiving work than anyone else. And so I always sort of say, like, if we're going to, if we're going to start to make our homes more equitable, then we need to make the invisible visible. Right? We need to start talking about all the things that get done in a household and who's doing them. Right, We need to be honest about that. And if you live in a household where the chores are divided up equally, that's awesome. You've already done this step. You don't have to do it. But the data would suggest that most of us do not because women are still doing 50% more of that work than men are in North America. So most of us are probably somewhere along that continuum. So making the invisible visible, starting to talk about it, being honest about it, and then shifting the load so that it is more equally distributed between all members of your household. And that's got to include the hands-on work, but also the mental load, right? Of figuring out what to make for dinner every day, remembering to send the birthday card, knowing that somebody has an appointment. Like when you start to make that list, it's huge. And I mean, thankfully, Eve Rodsky already made the list, right? In her book, Eve Rodsky's book, Fair Play. Yeah. So she's already made the list. So if you don't have time, energy to make the list, Eve Rodsky's already done it for you. You can just use hers. So that's sort of the work at home is to make sure that we're, we're actually freeing ourselves up a little bit to have an equal household so that when we go out into the world, we're, we're not starting way behind and exhausted and overwhelmed. Yeah, because I think like you you talked about this in the book and I've seen this among my friends. I've seen this on social media where women doing the traditional, you know, household chores and the mental and physical load is such an expectation. And then when the husband, the father does any of the work, it's like, wow, what a great dad. Or um, <laughs> I hate when I hear them say that they're babysitting. I'm like, it's your kid though. Like he's not, that's not baby babysitting that's your child and um even just hearing like with with some of my friends when they've said that their husbands really stepped up with with the kid it's like but you mutually made this decision to to have one and so how do we start to kind of change that conversation because i'm sure in one respect we were socialized with like the moms doing more of the work and like around the house and and the father being more of the like in the yeah. two parent nuclear family but I think on the on the flip side of it too is that the men have also grown up with the same expectation and so it's something that's so ingrained how do we start to flip the script on that and start to change that conversation with them Well you're absolutely right that this stuff runs deep right and it's it's an internalized gender role that we all carry whether it was in our own household or whether it was just what we saw on every TV show in every magazine you know, like, so it's all around us, this idea. And yeah, so the, I think the first thing is to start to make it a little more objective, right? That's where things like the list come in so handy, right? Of just listing all the chores. Because if you look at that list and you say, well, actually 70% of them are on mine, 20 are on yours and 10% are on the kids, then it's hard to argue that something needs to shift, especially if both people are also working outside the home right? Which most households are these days just for economic reasons, as much as for anything else, right? There are, there are many reasons, but economics is a big driver there. So I think it's making, it's, it's starting to make the invisible visible to yourself, first and foremost, as women is starting to unpack some of the expectations that we have for ourselves in these situations, and then having the courage to have those conversations with our partners or other people in our households. And they may not be easy conversations because it can be 
feel like a challenge, right? Feel like a threat to what we know, to what we're used to, to what we're comfortable with. The thing that really drives me, and maybe this will be helpful for other people too, is I have a teenager in my household. And so I come back to what example am I setting for my kid? And if I'm setting the example that he's going to go out in the world and some woman is going to do all this stuff for him, then I cannot live with that. That is not okay with me. That is not how I want to raise my child or the next generation of kids to be raised, right? And so sometimes that's motivating too. When we look at it and we say, if I have daughters, what message am I sending them, right? What, what expectations am I perpetuating for them? And same for our sons. Yeah, I think that that's so true. I mean, like I was just with one of my best friends over the weekend and we were with her three-year-old son and we were we were kind of laughing about it, but we were saying how he's, I mean, this is, you know, knock on wood. We said he's going to be the night, like he's going to be so nice to girls and, you know, he's going to treat everybody with so much respect and not bully and not do whatever because his mom and his aunt Valerie are going <laughs> to tell him what's, you know, and really model for him. And of yes. course- and with his dad too. And I think it's just so important for what the, like what they see in their household and that both parents can take care, like that, that they both can take care of those things and that it's not a gendered activity. I mean, there's nothing inherently female about vacuuming or cooking or any of that really. Absolutely. It's a social construct, right? So we can, we can, we can start dismantling that and, and changing it. Yeah. And I'm a terrible cook, so I'm not sure. No, but <laughs> you got to find the things that you enjoy, right? Like yeah. it's, I think the other part of it is, do you really enjoy those things or are you doing them because it's supposed to be the, you know, the woman's job, the man's job, whatever it might be. Like a lot of the things that I like to do in my household are like just manual labor, like things that would have traditionally been considered the man's job, but I enjoy them. And my partner is open to all kinds of splits in terms of let's experiment. I'll do a little of this. You do a little of that. See if we like it, but keep the conversation open. We need to start having these conversations with our partners. And I think that leads us into, you know, what do we need to start doing at work? And I think we also need to just keep up. I mean, it is a lot of effort to keep having these conversations at work, but I think Mm -hmm. we need to keep doing it. Yeah. And, you know, something else that I was thinking about too is that I struggle sometimes with, like, I can advocate for everybody in my life, but when it comes to standing up for myself and what my needs are, whether it's career, really, I think in a lot of areas, but I'd say especially career wise, it can be really challenging and you almost, like, you don't know what to say in the moment or somebody says something that is like a, really, you said that in in the workplace and you just don't have that comeback for them or you don't know how to respond sometimes in the moment. And you talk a little bit in the book about that fight, flight, or the fight, fight, or fawn. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Fight, flight, or fawn. Yes. (laughs) I know it's a mouthful. Yeah. And I've been looking a little bit into fawning just in general, like, because you always hear fight or flight and you never hear about the fawn response. Yeah. uh, Or at least not quite as much. And it was something that resonated so deeply with me when I first learned about it. And I'd love to know, like, how is that internalized in us? And how can we kind of combat that when we're kind of standing up for ourselves in, in a workplace situation, really any situation, but especially I'd say in the workplace? Yeah. So the idea of a fawn response, like, so all of those responses are stress responses, right? So when we have a threat in front of us or a perceived threat in front of us, we're going to respond. So some people are going to fight. They're going to like rise to the challenge and get in the face. Some people are going to do flight, which can look any number of ways. It can look like, like physically leaving, but it can also look like kind of shutting down, right? Like I'm just, I'm, I'm leaving in my own mind as opposed to physically leaving. And then another response. So, so initially fight or flight was sort of seen as the only ways to respond to stress, but those tests were only done on men, like most research back in the day. And even to this day, only done on male subjects. So when they started to look at how women respond to stress, they added a couple of other things. So the fawn response is a way to respond to stress by de-escalating or attempting to de-escalate potential aggression in a situation. So fawning just means being very, very nice to someone, even if they're not being nice to you, right? So if they're being threatening, you're trying to placate them. 
you're trying to de-escalate and bring everything down by being nice. That's just a survival response. There's no judgment there. It's no, it's no better or worse than fight or flight. And women, I think, because historically we understand the importance of social relationships in keeping people safe. Humans are social animals. We need each other. And I think women have understood that because we have such a strong role in doing that kind of work throughout history, right? The caregiving, the family, the community, all of that kind of stuff. So we understand the importance of it and the value of it. And so another way of looking at that response is called tend and befriend. So it's like when the you-know-what hits the fan, women sometimes will will have the response of like, all right, let's let's work on this. Let's let's fix it. Let's let's bring everybody together, right? That's the tend and befriend. Let's look after people. And so I think all of those responses to stressful situations are all perfectly valid. However, sometimes if you're faced with a challenge and you fawn in that situation, it puts you in a what feels like a submissive kind of role, which doesn't feel good. And so what I would say is the time to address those things is when the stress response has passed, which it always does, right? So we have our, we have a response where it's like, I, I can't respond. I can't say anything, right? And then later, I think of all the clever or biting or important things that I could have said. That's okay. You can go back and have that conversation. You can even go back and say, listen, that threw me off guard and I didn't know what to say in the time, but here's what I need to say now. So expecting ourselves to be able to respond and be clear and communicate in times of stress, just most people are just not able to do that, right? We're just trying to stay safe. So once we're back to a place of safety again, that's when we can go, okay, what do I actually want to do about this? What's the conversation I need to have about this? And can I go back and say what I need to say? And I think so often we can. And I think about, I mean, some of those times those conversations are with female coworkers where when I really think about it, so many of them have been in a similar situation. And I know for me personally, if somebody came to me and said that, hey, I'd like to address something that maybe it was heated in the moment we didn't get to really talk about and came back to me and said, like, I'd like to, now that I've cooled down, talk about this, it's something I'd be open to. And I think that most reasonable people are it's the eq part of leadership right the emotional intelligence part yeah emotional intelligence relationship intelligence like most of us are working with other human beings and so we're going to need these skills right the skills of being able to go back and debrief or give and receive the feedback or discuss the uncomfortable things that happened got to build that muscle Oh, 100%. Now, something else that you talk about in your book and something that I think that many of us struggle with in general, I don't think this is I don't think this is limited to just women and female identifying listeners, but really that sense of purpose and stepping into our power. And you talk about this commitment and meaning. There's like this matrix in your book. I'd love to know a little bit more about that, kind of how we can find that purpose and really start driving toward those goals, whether those goals are toward equity or toward moving up in an organization or really what that looks like. Yeah. So this idea of, you know, looking at things as kind of a matrix between, you know, commitment along one axis and meaning along the other. So a lot of times we work really hard. We're very committed to something, right? So we're, you know, we're there long days, long hours, we're making it happen, but it doesn't feel like it's very meaningful for us. And so that's where we get into the territory of burnout, right? Where we're just like, we're working really hard, but just doesn't feel like it's fulfilling or meaningful. So what we want to be able to do is like, I I think the commitment piece is great as long as it comes with a sense of meaning. And so for me, it's the idea of being able to look at the work that you're doing and say, is this meaningful to me? Do I find it fulfilling? And most of us will have an answer that's not either a straight up yes or a straight up no. There's usually a gray area in between. And so the question is, I mean, for some people, the the answer is no, it's not. And it's time for me to move on. Like that happens. Absolutely. Like new job, new career, whatever it might be. That's life. But sometimes the question is, what would make it more meaningful? Right. How could I change the way I'm doing this work to make it more meaningful? 
And that often connects back in somewhere with our values, right? What do I really care about? What makes me feel fulfilled? What makes me feel aligned with myself? So those are important questions. It's sort of this practice and art of reflection. Whenever we feel like, hey, things don't quite add up here, they don't quite line up, then can we ask ourselves some questions to try to discover that and say, how can I make this feel more aligned, more connected to who I really am and what I really care about? Because life is short. To spend it all on something we don't care about, that is tragic. Yeah. Like we spend, quote unquote, a third of our lives at work. But I mean, it's so much more than that. I think when it comes down to being plugged in on our phones and having the extra hours that we're putting in. And I know for me personally, I did one of those strength assessments a while back where it was talking about what skills you have that you're strong in and how much energy do they bring you. And you have these learned behaviors that you're good at, but you hate, or maybe you don't Mm -hmm. hate, but it's, and work ethic was one of them. And it wasn't that I don't have a strong work ethic, but it was like just working for the sense of work. And I think just for the sake of working without any real purpose. And I realized that so much of where I was struggling career-wise and just personally was this aimless, like, yes, I'm putting in all the hours and burning the candle at both ends, but where is the meaning in it? What difference is this making? And so for you, you say, talking about your values like how how do we kind of uncover that yeah I think you know values coming back to values is something that I mean we do it in all of our women's leadership programs and I personally do it at least once or twice a year and there's some really great tools out there so Brene Brown's Dare to Lead for example has a great values exercise in it and essentially it's it's looking at a list of values and starting to do some sorting and say you know which are the ones that that really speak to me, which are the ones that that really matter to me. And then in our program, we also do this process of saying, okay, now look at them again. Like once you've sort of shortlisted, look at them again and now try to discover which ones are imposed on you. Like which are the ones you're supposed to have because your parents told you to or a community told you to or somebody else said that that's what matters in life. And can we really get down to the ones that are really truly yours? Right. And then how do we make decisions big and small that help us align to those? How do we use those values as a decision filter? So, you know, when something happens and I'm going to say yes or no, does it feel aligned in what way? And if it doesn't, could I make it more aligned? What could I do? What could be different here? Mm hmm. Well, I think that it's just something that can be so draining in today's world. And I think with the pandemic and kind of coming back into quote unquote normal life and taking on all of the things, it could be so challenging to know. Like, I think because we had two years, two and a half years maybe of not being able to do certain things. So then when it all kind of opened back up, it's like, yes, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And I also would like it to hopefully position me for the next great thing. And then when it really comes down to it, am I actually getting enough sleep? Am I actually enjoying the things I'm doing? And like, as far as those optional things are concerned, like, are they really things that fulfill me where I feel like I'm making a difference? And, or is it just like the thing on the resume? And I think, Yeah. Asking those questions. I mean, I have a hard time saying no. And it was something that really helped me to say no to some things that I just could not commit to. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing where if we know that we're making a decision that feels really aligned. And and I think the other thing that I think about when I'm making decisions too, is like, if I'm saying yes to this, then there's, there's only so much time. There's only so much time. There's only so much of me. So if I'm saying yes to this thing, does that mean I'm I'm by default having to say no to something else. I think there's this sort of, you know, hopefully we're past this now, but like this sort of like the myth of having it all. It's like, well, do you you have it all at what cost, right? Like what's, what's the loss there? Because I I think there is a loss. There's a, there's a loss of being present. There's a loss of smelling the roses. Yeah, I completely agree. And even if you're like, you're saying yes to all of the things, but you may be saying no to yourself and saying no to the basic necessities of life and taking care of your own health and your mental health and all of that. And I think that that can be a really slippery slope. Well, and there's a lot of great work and writing being done now about the grind culture, right? And how grind culture serves capitalism really, really well, but it doesn't serve human beings all that well. 
And so, you know, we've sort of been told that this this is what makes us good people, right? And how hard we work. It's time to question that a little bit. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to hard work. I'm a hard worker too. And to what end, right? For what and for who? Yeah. And if I had full control over my schedule, I know that if I can eliminate meetings at certain times of the day and really focus my work time and like really you know, like I can get a lot more done in, in a much shorter amount of time than you actually need in the week if if I were to kind of structure it in the way that I wanted to. And rather than just then piling on more because you got it done and then, you know, leading to that burnout as well. But there is so much that doesn't need to happen. We can get a lot done without even the 40 hour work week, in my opinion, like. Absolutely. Well, and this is what I mean by challenging some of the assumptions about this is just the way it is. Like, well, well, you know, like, why is the work week based on that? Why, why are we counting people's time instead of people's output? Or, you know, I, I just think there are different ways of structuring these things that are much more creative and interesting. And much more human-centered. Yeah, exactly. Like I know that when I I was very fortunate when I was in grad school, I was I was working full time, and my boss had gone to she she had also gone through a similar program and was very accepting of like you need to leave at this time so you can get to school. And that drive time, like leaving the office a little bit early, that really did not impact my productivity. It didn't really do anything for that. And if I hadn't been so fortunate, or if I'd been maybe in another organization where they are, you know, well, now you need to come in X amount earlier to make up the time or whatever it is. I think that can be really harmful. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the fact that there was somebody there who understood and treated you like a person in that situation probably meant that you were, you were giving your best at your job, right? Like, so there's a lot of diminishing returns when we start to ask people for everything all the time. And I think that's what we're seeing now with things like great resignation and quiet quitting, right? Whereas where people are just saying like, no more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something else that I'd love to ask you about as well. I think that you know there are not quite as many men that listen to this show, but but I know there are some. And I guess for for the men that are listening, how can they be better allies and be a part of this movement? for the better rather than kind of being nervous about it or thinking of it as entirely like a female movement? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's finding the women with whom you can have conversations, right? Like that you can actually ask your questions and not feel that you need to be defensive and just have honest conversations, like try to understand. So it's finding, finding people for men is finding people that you can have that conversation with where you can actually learn, right? You can hear people's, hear women's perspectives, hear what it's like and learn. And then I think there's also a lot of ways today to get more educated about the inequalities and intersectionalities in our world, right? So I think there's lots of ways to sort of learn more about that. I mean, I'm reading great books right now about allyship and how to be a better ally myself. And so I think it's any of these topics, there's a way to learn more and go deeper, And I think if you want to be part of the change, and I would hope that men do, men who care about equality and believe in equality and want to unlearn some of the sexism and patriarchy and misogyny that they were raised in, it's a great time to start learning and having conversations. It it can be uh, uncomfortable. I don't think there's any way to do this work without being willing to be uncomfortable. And I think for women, for us, there's a lot of call out culture, cancel culture happening all over the place. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when that's necessary. Like some behavior is just not acceptable, period, end of story. But I also think there's a lot of room to be calling people in right now. And having conversations and inviting people to learn and have conversations because we have to do this work together. We really do. And I'm actually amazed at the openness that that many of the men do have that want to be allies. They just, again, they just don't really know how. I remember in grad school, one of the, I, I was really nervous to do the presentation. I was, I, we, we were all presenting on different bad behaviors basically in the workplace. And so mine was on sexism. I'm like, I'm going to pick the worst bad behavior, one of them, and talked about, you know, how women are perceived in the workplace. And there were 
several, I was very nervous because I was in a class of about two thirds men and thought I'm going to completely lose my audience. Like hopefully this resonates with somebody, but I picked the topic because I thought it was important to me. And I had several guys come up to me afterward and said that it really made them rethink how they talk about and how they think about some of their female coworkers and how like a female coworker that stands up for herself when it really comes down to it, where they thought, well, she's being pushy or she's being aggressive that, oh, she's actually doing the exact same thing as John Mm -hmm. is doing, but I'm perceiving it a certain way because I'm not used to a woman presenting herself like this. And I mean, it is, it, it can be really challenging. I know that I just read, so you want to talk about race to try to learn how I can be a better ally as well. And those conversations are difficult because you don't want to think of yourself as somebody who's discriminating or having any kind of prejudice. We want to think that we're all well-meaning, nice people. And in a way we are, but there are so many blind spots that we have and so many ways that we can improve and things that we're doing that are harmful that we don't even realize. And if we have the conversations, I mean, that's the only way we're really going to, or, you know, at least doing the work, at least reading and doing something, but having those conversations, I mean, that's going to be a great, that that's such an important way to make those changes and to even have that awareness. And I think it's just, I've come to terms with the reality. And I think, you know, it's like, I grew up in a, in a racist and sexist culture. And most of us did. Most of us still do, right? Like, that's just what's around us. I mean, the, the numbers don't lie. When you look at sort of like who has what in our society, I think it's pretty hard to deny that it's racist and sexist out there. And so, of course, that is part of our socialization, as part of our upbringing, as part of us. And that doesn't mean that we're bad people. But it is, if, if we want to be on the side of helping to solve and resolve, then we have to do the work to understand those things, understand how they live in us and how we can start to unlearn some of those things. And it's, it's also, it's about like, what are we doing? You know, so I always think of like allyship as a verb. It's not about who you are being because we all have good days and bad days and we all make mistakes, but it's about that we are actively trying. Yeah. Like I even think about, I work in banking, but my primary role is public relations. And I remember an article coming out basically about so many of the words that are inherently racist that we use in our daily language. And words that I had used many times growing up, not any like racial slur or anything like that, but that just had, you know, racist history to them that many people would not know. And it didn't mean like learning that information. I mean, it doesn't make you a bad person that you used it, but then to take the knowledge that you gain and not use those words or not do the things that are, that are harmful, not say whatever it is, but Yeah, trying to just keep moving in the right direction and being receptive when when you do find that out rather than because it can be really easy to get defensive and like, you're right, like it is it is an action and we think of it as like, well, I'm not one of these people that would ever do this or would ever discriminate against a woman. And I thought that was so interesting in the book, the way that you said that when we think we have no biases and when we don't acknowledge that we have biases, that's when we're going to come into something with the most bias. <laughs> That's right, because we're not willing to just be honest and look at it, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's it's sort of level setting, like, hey, these things live in all of us. And you know, it was sort of like they were they were embedded into us without our permission, but the reality is they're there. And so what are we gonna do about it? And if we let to your point about the story about the article that you read, it's it's the old no better, do better thing, right? So I would say it's no better. If we know better, let's do better. And let's also help other people do better. And that is putting ourselves out there a little bit more, a little bit beyond just our own selves. Yeah. Now, one other question I have when it comes to just these biases that all of us have, whether whether we admit to them or not, what can we do like when we are in those positions of power or at least have some form of influence, what can we do to improve the system? And especially when it comes to hiring and getting women and people of color and people of marginalized groups that are not getting that representation, getting them a seat at the table, getting them that the leadership opportunities as well. Yeah. I am a big believer in transparency. I think we need to be able to see a problem to solve a problem. So I think if we have the, if we have the numbers in front of us in an organization, you know, and whether those numbers are like coming from HR or they're coming from our own 
observations, right? You can look around and see who's at the table and who's not. But it's to be able to look at that and assess it and say, okay, does this feel representative or not? So first of all, we're identifying it, right? We're making something that used to be kind of invisible, visible by identifying it. And then it's about helping other people see it because maybe other people aren't even looking for it. So um, helping other people see it and then starting to understand not just how do we change the numbers, but also how do we change the systems and that culture so that it means that this problem is not just going to keep recurring. So an example of that is women are graduating from engineering programs in university at really high numbers over the last few years, which is fantastic, right? And you would expect that we'd have the same number of women engineers as men engineers in business because, you know, their graduation rates are similar or getting close to. That's not the case because a lot of those environments are not friendly to women. So even if you get the numbers right, you still need to get the culture and the systems right. And so that, again, requires some pushing against those systems and some questioning about like, well, why are we doing things this way? Do we have to do it this way? Right. Does it have to be the 40 hour week? Back to your example. And why does it have to be that? What are we looking for here? What are we trying to achieve? And can we get there in different creative ways or ways that are more recognizing of the true diversity that we have and the true diversity that we want to have? Yeah, because again, I even working in an organization that has some systems in place that has improved especially with like with maternity policies and things like that, you still see like certain biases, um, maybe from individuals, but then there are also I've had, you know, just in general in, in the working world, seeing friends who have had to change their work schedules for whatever reason and have addressed to their work, hey, I do need to pick up my kid from school on this day of the week and, and I will work from home the rest of the time. And they're like, well, you can't do that. But it really doesn't impact like the output or any of that. It's just slightly different timing that, again, like has no bearing on the, on the actual work. And seeing some of that bias and seeing that, uh, gosh, I was just watching, I, I was watching reruns of Desperate Housewives. And I know that that's 20 years ago, but there was like blatant discrimination on hiring one of the characters because she was pregnant. And yeah. I know that like that's illegal, but there, there are ways that people get around the legalities of it and can still have those biases. And I oh, think, absolutely, yeah, there are just so many things that, that we can be doing to, to get it right. Well, and this is this is another example of how men can be allies. Take parental leaves. Leave work early to pick up your kids. Because when that is no longer seen as women's work, it will change the way it's perceived in the workforce. And I hate to say it, but that that is one of the things that's going to push the change in terms of flexible work time. If it is not just women who want it, it will start to push. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that what you're doing is so important and I could talk to you about this all day. I really believe so strongly in the work that you're doing and in just finding this equality and equity in our workplaces. And I think inter intersectionally, so not just for women, but for all of us to have those seats at the table and to be represented and to have our voices heard and to not have to be the like not be the model of the group that you're a part of, but to be able to just be yourself authentically and show up as yourself and be represented and be heard. I think that everything you're doing, it's so needed again in, in the world that we're living in, especially as we hopefully start to take steps forward or continue to take those steps forward. I do have some rapid fire questions I love to ask the guests as well. Great. Awesome. And these are brand new. We just refreshed them for the new year. So you are one of the first ones to, to get our new rapid fires. So what is your favorite self-care practice right now? Ooh, that's a good one. The first thing that popped to my mind was that I'm starting my day by writing in my journal instead of starting my day by doing email or scrolling mm. or any number of other things. And it's just, I think it's just tapping into a different part of my brain. It starts my day off a lot more meditatively more quietly and somehow that just sets the tone for something it just sets the tone for my days to be different I'm really enjoying it I love that. I'm trying to unplug a little bit more myself. And I find that those mornings, I mean, there's so much more intention you bring into the day when when you do start out that way versus I'll be so reactive if I wake up to that email that I just don't or whatever that we yeah. see on social media. So I think that's such a great answer. 
And it's nothing like I'm not writing anything profound, right? It could be a half a page with a cup of coffee. So it's I'm I'm just putting no expectations on it. That's awesome. Now, my next one for you, if you had a one word theme for the year ahead, what would that be? Oh, well, brave. But then the word that popped up right behind it was kick ass. Oh, yeah. Which felt a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like now's the time to keep our foot on the gas. And, uh, you know, I think these changes are in progress. I think, you know, there's lots of people waking up to understanding things at a much deeper level. I just think we need to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think kick-ass encompasses brave, but like to the next power, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's got a little something behind it that I think I need. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. And finally, what are you most looking forward to right now? I am looking forward to an upcoming family vacation because we haven't had a family vacation in three years because of COVID back and forth. And so I'm just excited to be spending some time just in play with my family and hopefully what's going to feel pretty carefree. Oh, that's so nice. Where are you guys going? We're going to Costa Rica, which is a happy place for us for sure. Oh, that is on my list. Oh, that sounds absolutely amazing. Well, Belinda, again, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm so excited for the listeners to get to hear it. Before I let you go, tell us where we can find your book and how we can connect with you. Yeah. So the best place is the website, womensleadershipintensive.ca. And that's because we're Canadian, so it's .ca. Mm-hmm. And so there's a book page there where you can find out how to buy the book. You can get a companion reflection guide that goes along with the book. So that just, you know, asking some questions and almost like doing a journaling as you go through the book, which is helpful. And then it's also got lots of information about how to follow us on social and information about our women's leadership programs there as well. Fantastic. I'm going to make sure to link that in the show notes. I highly, highly recommend the book. I think that, again, there's just so many great takeaways and it's very much needed, especially I think COVID really opened our eyes even more so to the inequities out there and how much needs to change. And I think that there is just so much power in being able to fight for ourselves and to have our place, to have that seat at the table, to be able to just be represented and be heard. And I think that what you're doing is, again, just so needed and so inspiring. So I would love to thank you for coming on the show and for sharing with us. You are so welcome. I mean, I was really wanting the book to help women feel seen and and feel activated to really show up as themselves and lead as themselves. And I think the world needs it so much. So thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. The work Belinda is doing is truly inspiring to me, and I loved reading her book to really dive deep into the ways that we can start building a better world. The pandemic shed a lot of light on some of the inequities in our workplaces and how this gender binary is limiting our potential as a society. Sometimes it can be really easy to feel powerless in the world, so I appreciate how Belinda's work helps us take some of that power back and fight for the changes we want to see. I've linked her information in the show notes along with her book, Women, Leadership, and Saving the World. I highly recommend checking it out. If you liked what you just heard, I'd love it if you left a rating and review on your favorite podcast app and shared this episode with a friend. Listeners like you are what keep these shows running, and I'm so grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in. Thank you for being part of the Wellness and Wanderlust community. I can't wait to see you next time. If you have a topic you want to explore in the future, reach out to me on Instagram, Wellness and Wanderlust blog, or you can always email me at Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, at wellnessandwanderlust.net. Have a fantastic day. I'll see you next week.